My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. As I record this on Monday, my kid's not in school. If you live in Ontario and have kids, you're probably in the same boat. But on Tuesday, the children will be back in classrooms. A two-school day strike is over. A bill that lasted less then one week will be repealed and a government that said it would not, could not back down, did. And that's just the beginning of this story. QP wouldn't budge. They refused to take a strike off the table. There will be a strike tomorrow. For how long? For as long as it takes. Hundreds of workers out here this morning uh, carrying signs with slogans like hands off workers' rights. They believe that uh, the Doug Ford government is trampling on their constitutional right. Having walked a little bit through this crowd, having talked to our members who are the real heroes here, who have decided that they are going to stand up for themselves, for the important work they do in our schools every day. As a gesture of good faith, our government is willing to rescind the legislation. We're willing to rescind Section 33, but only if QP agrees to show a similar gesture of good faith by stopping their strike. What began as a contract fight between educational support workers in Ontario and Doug Ford's provincial government rapidly became a lot more than that. It became a question that cut to the heart of Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms when the government invoked the Notwithstanding Clause. It became a rallying cry for unions across the country, with other Ontario groups saying they were ready to join in solidarity on the picket lines, and unions in other provinces sending money to support their brothers and sisters without income. And now, Negotiations still need to happen, and this will become a test of a government that had to walk back a strong-arm tactic to see if they can do those negotiations in good faith and reach a deal. Because that two-school-day strike may be over, but what those workers fought so hard to retain was their right to strike in search of fair pay. So we'll see if they get it, or if we do this all over again. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Cynthia Mulligan is a Queen's Park reporter for City News. She's seen a lot 
down at QP. How does today stack up, Cynthia? Oh, it's up there as one of the more interesting days, Jordan. <laughs> no kidding. So for those who don't have the background, and including those outside of Ontario, because this became a national story, I think, over the weekend. Yes. How did we end up here in this labor fight before we talk about uh, its potential conclusion? Well, I would say it's taken years to get to this point. Um, we've had a lot of education labor issues in this province over the last 20 years or so. Many parents will say that they have children that didn't have a year, that didn't have some form of work to rule, strike, whatever. Um, so there has been growing frustration. And even the night Doug Ford was elected uh, in June, a conservative said to me, you know, he's, there's talk that he's going to make education an essential service. So I've been waiting and watching to see what was going to happen. And you could see the talking back and forth, the, the talking notes from this government that kids are not going to have this school year disrupted. And it felt like the gauntlet was being thrown down and a clear warning. And then and then CUPE came in with a, an 11.7% wage increase per year for four years request. And the stage was set. And so what did the government do exactly? Why did education workers walk off the job on Friday? Well, the government used a hammer never before used in this country. And they decided to invoke a contract, which has been done before, but then usually that goes to arbitration. And very often the arbitrator will, will, will rule in the union favor and workers will get a higher raise. Uh, this time, though, the government decided to head that off the, at the pass and they decided to invoke Section 33, the notwithstanding clause, which means that it couldn't be fought in the courts. It would overrule any, any intervention by the courts. So the, the union would not be able to fight it. And it was irrevocable. They were just going to have to accept this contract and they weren't allowed to strike. And I would suggest that the Ford government underestimated the union hmm. and overplayed their hand because the union was not going to back down. They were going to take the threat of massive fines. I mean, half a million dollars a day for the union and and $4,000 a day per worker. There are 55,000 workers. Although the Ford government, the insider said that Doug Ford would never do that to union members who aren't making a whole lot of money to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it's a big threat. It's a big financial threat. And the union went, no way. And they dug in their heels. And then over the weekend, there were a lot of phone calls being made. A lot more unions were going to stand in solidarity with QP right across the country, private sector, public sector. I know on Friday night, uh, the president of QP National was going to be having a conversation with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So a lot of pressure was being put on Doug Ford. A poll came out on the weekend that showed the public felt that this was Doug Ford's fault, the government's fault. So all these things added up and put a lot of pressure on the premier. In the big picture, before we get to the actual battle and, and maybe its conclusion, um, you mentioned this had never before been done. Can you explain why using the notwithstanding clause in this way was so concerning for labor? Well, it overrides the Charter of Rights and Freedoms for five years. And the union leaders were very upset and concerned that this was going to be used henceforth across the country, that it would change bargaining that it would take their power away from them. So it was a massive concern for unions. 
What kind of resistance, you touched on it a little bit, but what kind of resistance did we see, I guess, on the picket lines last Friday and at Queen's Park? And uh, there were some pretty big protests over the weekend. What was all that like? Well, it was fascinating to watch. And and you have to remember, these aren't teachers unions, which, which tend to carry more clout. Teachers, you know, after a certain point, they can make up to $100,000. These are support workers. These are librarians. These are early childhood educators. It's mm-hmm. a union largely of women. The majority are women. These are the people that work with children with autism, children with special needs that are there for them. They're seen differently, I believe, by the public. And and listen, I think there is some fatigue about education strikes in this province. Right. But I think that this union and these workers tended to have public sympathy because they do see that they work very hard. And the union was very effective, I think, at messaging that it's largely women and the average one makes, you know, $39,000 a year. Now that's Mm -hmm. a little off because they're including part-time workers in that. They're including lunchroom supervisors in that who work, you know, an hour a day. Right. So that brings it down, but they still aren't seen as an overpaid group of people. Over the weekend, as those protests were happening and as um, QP sort of first hinted at and then I guess said outright that there were other unions ready to back them to join this resistance, we heard all that stuff publicly. Yes. What were you hearing at that time from your sources in and around the government? What did, what did they think about that? Well, they didn't, they didn't really want to talk about that very much, to be honest. Yeah. I think the first day that they announced the legislation and that they were going to invoke the notwithstanding clause, they were very confident and and they felt that what they were doing was bulletproof. And I really think that they underestimated the union and felt that the union would comply. And I think it took them by surprise when the union did not. And I asked the education minister, you know, have you underestimated this union? Have you blown your arsenal? Like, what are you going to do now when they're openly defying you? Yeah. And he he sidestepped and, you know, went in a different direction. But but I'm sure they were caught off guard by this, by by how hard the union was going to fight back and how quickly other unions were coming to their defense. So let's talk about what happened on Monday now and to set the stage. You know, I've I've got a kid who's out of school uh, today and parents across the province were kind of up in the air, scrambling, trying to make plans for maybe the rest of the week, maybe longer than that. Nobody knew how long this could go on and what would happen next. And and Doug Ford spoke first at a press conference in the morning. What did he say? Well, he started by blaming CUPE for everyone being in this situation and that they had presented a fair offer. And he was quite adamant about that. And But he had, he was quite somber. And there was sort of the same tone in his voice. Remember during COVID when he backed down from uh, closing playgrounds and allowing police to just stop anybody. It was yes. kind of the same tone. So even though he was taking on QP, we're wondering what was coming next. And then sure enough, he said he would rescind the entire bill um, because they can't, according to, to his, uh, somebody in his government who explained it to me, they can't just take out the notwithstanding, the invocation of the notwithstanding. They have to eliminate the entire bill. So he did say that they were going to rescind the bill as long as the union 
went back to the bargaining table and ended its strike. And after that, uh, QP spoke. Describe that press conference because there was an awful lot of people on stage with uh, Fred Hahn. I would suggest that was the biggest show of labor force in memory. I mean, there was one lady at the end that was like within an inch of falling off the stage. There were so many union uh, people on that stage, all you know, shouting solidarity. And, and they were sending a very powerful message to this premier. And I would also say to other premiers across the country, we're not going to stand for this. You cannot do this and don't try it again. So what was the result of that press conference then? Where did things stand after both sides had had their say? So it took a while because both were posturing. Both were, you know, putting their stake in the ground and the union was claiming victory, but it was sending a clear message. You cannot do this again. Uh, finally, it took a while. Finally, the union said, yes, they will be back on the job tomorrow. But it was interesting because I flew out of Queen's Park right after Doug Ford's uh, announcement. And I was speaking with union members who were walking a picket line around Queen's Park. And I said, and they didn't even know the news. Mm -hmm. And I I told them what had happened. And I said, what do you want your union to do? Do you want to go back to work and, and resume negotiations? And they all said no. Really? Yeah. They all said they did not trust Doug Ford and they did not believe it. So there was a real gap between Doug Ford's announcement and then the union. They had already, so Doug Ford spoke at nine. The union was supposed to speak at 10. They postponed that to 11, I'm sure, to wait to hear what he had to say. And then it was almost noon, say, you know, what was it, quarter to 12 before they actually spoke. So there was a lot of negotiating going on. I know that they were talking with the government. Doug Ford gave it to them in writing that he was going to rescind the bill. So so there was a lot of bargaining and backroom negotiating, but I'm sure there was a lot of talk like, do we actually stand down now when, mm-hmm. when we have so much power behind us in this moment? My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. So they did announce that they'd be back to work Tuesday morning, this morning, if you're listening now. And what happens now? Kids are back at school right now, but, you know, there's no contract here, right? Cynthia, where do negotiations stand at this point? What's next? Well, they have to get back to the bargaining table. And what's interesting, Jordan, is Friday night, I was speaking with a bunch of union exec. And one of them said to me, you know, the irony is we're actually not that far apart. Huh. How far apart are they? Do we know how far apart they are? So the union came in at 11.7, which, you know, they say, they insist that that was not high. But I think most people would argue that's quite high and that that was not going to be attainable, especially with this government. Hmm. And when when the average pay raise is, you know, 1% to 2%, I believe, right now. Right. Even though, and like, yes, inflation is massive. And yes, these people, you know, I think another conversation at another day is, what should we be paying these workers? But, and that's an important conversation that I think has been lost in all of this. The union dropped its wage increase demand from 11.7 per year 
each year for four years and came down to six. And the last offer by the education minister was 2.5 for people making, I I believe, less than 39,000 in in that range and 1.5 per year for those above. So, you know, one of the execs said to me, you know, we could have probably settled it around three and a bit for the lower paid. You know, that's not that far off. Or maybe they could have done, you know, a, a bit of an escalating pay over four years. So she did not seem to think that that it was an impossible deal to reach. Hmm. So now I think they're both going back into their corners. I think the union feels, you know, void and and that, you know, they've, they've just won a major victory. And I think hopefully both sides will decide it's, it's time to settle this. And the union now... I assume, and like every parent in the province, I'm I'm hoping it comes to uh, a peaceful settlement. But the union now does have their right to strike back. And if they did do that, it would not be illegal. Is that right? That's right. I mean, if, if nothing happens, the whole process can start all over again and they give their five-day notice of, of hitting, the, hitting the picket lines. Right. My gut is nobody wants to go through this all over again. And yeah. that, you know, listen, Doug Ford can also declare them an essential service. And have a contract imposed, and then it goes to arbitration. Right. So I think you know we'll we'll see where it goes next, but hopefully some cooler heads will prevail. And because listen, it takes two, right? It mm-hmm. takes two to have a strike. It takes two to reach a deal. It takes two to not reach a deal. This is maybe a dumb question, but why didn't Ford just? go to the arbitrator in the first place instead of imposing the notwithstanding clause. I assume that maybe now he wishes he had done that, but I don't know. <laughs> well, see, you know, back to election night when somebody told me that was the plan. Right. I, it, it's such a good question. It's not a dumb question at all, actually. And I actually asked the very same question to somebody within the Ford government in his inner circle. Like, why didn't you just make them an essential service? And the answer that I was given is, one, it takes too long because to go mm. to a, into arbitration can take a very long time. And two, the government loses control. Three, going into arbitration generally means that the union will end up making more. So in the big picture, and Cynthia, I'm so glad I'm talking to you today because you've covered provincial politics in Ontario for a long time. You've also covered uh, the Fords extensively. What does this mean in the big picture for labor in this province? And what does it mean for Doug Ford and his government? Like that solidarity that you described that we saw on on the stage, uh, that must spook them a little bit going forward, right? I would think so. I mean, I think he was trying to ultimately send a strong message to the teachers unions because they are considered more powerful and more, you know, stronger and strident, perhaps. Right. I mean, we know this premier is not afraid of using a big stick when perhaps a needle and thread would do. And we've seen him do it in the past. So I think, you know, in this case, he has walked down and, you know, his supporters will say, listen, this is a premier who listens and he knows he he doesn't stick to something that's not working. This is how they will defend this. And mm-hmm. then he listens and he will adjust. And we have seen him do that in the past. His detractors will say, you know, he overreached and he should never have done this in the first place. I think a lot of people were uncomfortable with a premier overriding the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in a labor dispute. Whereas I don't think they would have been uncomfortable as much or, or maybe not even many of them, not at all, if they were declared an essential service. I think they want a sense of fair play, but the union can't 
overplay this now either, or they will lose public support. Last question then. You've covered uh, politics for some time. You alluded in your first answer to Ontario has indeed seen uh, decades of education labor fights dating all the way back to to Mike Harris, I think, in the, mm-hmm. in the 90s. Have you ever seen a labor fight unfold quite like this one? Never. And listen, Dalton McGuinty imposed a contract on teachers, remember? And, and they were furious. Mm-hmm. But six years later, the, the, the government had to pay what, $100 million back to the unions because the courts ruled that it wasn't right. So it it is unprecedented. I mean, I guess that's the one word I can use. Like nothing has happened like this in this country ever before. So it was a trial balloon that's been deflated and now they have to start all over again. But I I would suggest that premiers and governments will be watching this very closely to see what happens next. And, and they'll take lessons away from that. Will they be more ginger or will they be harder, but in a different way? But I don't think they'll be using the notwithstanding clause in a labor dispute anytime soon. What about on the union side? Have you ever seen a solidarity quite like what we saw on the stage on Monday? Not like this. No, no. And, and you know, my sense on Friday and through the weekend was the Ford government was going to have to do something very quickly to tone this down, or it was going to become an out-of-control show of labor force. People were talking about a general strike. Absolutely. And and that was the talk. And, you know, I, I asked the head of Unifor on Friday, because Unifor donated $100,000 to the cause for CUPE and, and, and the BC Teachers Union, a, hun- uh, a million. Yeah. So, but I I did say to the Unifor president, you know, this is a drop in the bucket. And she said, yes, but it's just the beginning. Don't, don't worry. And then I said, are we going back to the Mike Harris days to your point about Mike Harris? And she said, it's going to be worse. Do you think that that kind of solidarity um, will change anything in sort of union uh, labor relations? Will people be more empowered? And I speak not just about the the public sector, but even the private sector. Like, listen, I, I don't know anything, but it looked like they were kind of spoiling for a fight. Isn't everybody after COVID? I mean, it, <laughs> don't you think? I think I think it hit like all these notes all at the same time, sort of creating a perfect storm for for this union and for others to get on board. People are tired. People are cranky. Inflation is through the roof. You have the most underpaid or uh, uh, least paid education union here. And they've also been under a pay cap increase for the last three years at 1%. And they're mad and they're tired. And they were working in the schools through COVID when they were just as afraid of COVID as everybody else. Mm -hmm. And it's been a really rough go. And I think that that also inspired a fight like we've never seen before. All these different things at play, all at the same time. Well, fingers crossed that reasonable heads prevail now and and people get a fair deal. Cynthia, thank you. I know it's crazy down there at Queen's Park, so thank (laughs) you for finding the time for us today. My pleasure, Jordan. Thank you. Cynthia Mulligan, Queen's Park reporter at City News. That was the big story. And thank you to all of you who wrote in and some of you who dialed in last week to make sure that we covered this story. You can find all of our coverage at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us anytime you like on Twitter, as long as Twitter exists, at thebigstoryfpn. In fact, here's one for you. Where should the big story go if Twitter goes? 
Twitter has always seemed like a natural home for us. It's where journalists and news junkies and people with hot takes like to hang out. I don't know where we'd go next. You can find me personally on Mastodon if I ever figure out how to use it properly. But where should the big story exist in social media if Twitter's gone? That's one for you. You can write in. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can send it to us on Twitter, as I said, at the Big Story FPN, or you can send it to us via email, hello at the Big Story Podcast.ca. And you can call us and leave a voicemail, 416 935 5935. If you're listening to this in a podcast player that lets you rate or review, we'd be honored if you did so. If you're not, that's okay, but you have to pick up the phone and text or call a friend and let them know about the show. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow when my child will be back in school. Thank God. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.